Okay, good morning. It's good to see you here. It's good to be here. I'm so glad to see sunshine. I'm sure many of you are. I think I was telling someone last Monday was one of the bleakest, dreariest days. At least it, it struck me and it was like, oh man, I'm just ready for sunshine. And we got sunshine. So I am so grateful for that. <clears throat> so if you all remember, today we're going to continue in our series here in First John. We're going to um, take the first two verses of John chapter, or First John chapter two. <coughs> By the way, I'm sure you see um, Wayne and Marcus are both not here. Marcus has gone on a, he was in Florida for a speaking engagement, and Wayne's gone on a business trip, so um, hope they're having a great time, but we do miss them when they're not here. Also, let me just, let me just make, say this before we start, pray for the people who are sick. I mean, it's been, it's been a real drag for a lot of people. Um, and just keeps going. And I'm, I don't know if you hear, I'm still, still fighting a cough. Someone, someone told me to call it the, the, the hundred day, the hundred dog kushta. I, I don't know if it's true or not. I'm hoping it doesn't last a hundred days, but, um, it's definitely a whole lot better than it was. Anyway, we are in first John chapter two. So I'm curious how many of you, how many of you remember, um, was it two weeks ago when Marcus kind of um, started into into this um, into this passage? I wasn't here. I listened to it. Do you remember what what the the term was that the, the church was facing, or one of the the earliest false teachings that the early church faced? Do you remember anyone remember what that was called? No, Gnosticism. Do you remember Marcus talking about Gnosticism at all? So they, the Gnosticism is, the, is what it carries this idea. That thing bugs me. It carries this idea of something is either spiritual, or you, you have things that are spiritual. There's the spiritual side of life, and then there's the material and the physical side of life, and the two cannot connect. The two cannot be a part of each other. So, Either we are all spiritual, we have the spiritual side of us, but our bodies, everything physical is evil. And so then, so then the belief was how in the world could God, who is perfect and spiritual, how could he come in human form? Remember how John actually goes at that right at the start of his, of his passage. He, when, um, he talks about what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have actually touched. He's talking about Jesus as the physical form of life, him coming in person. And that's and if you I'd encourage you to take the time to just sit down and read the whole book of First John. It doesn't take long. I've done it a couple times here in the last couple of weeks. And when you do that, that idea of um, Jesus could not be coming, could not be fully human and be fully God. It's throughout. Paul is addressing it through our Paul, John, is addressing it throughout this letter. <coughs> and then last week, Wayne looked at um, the, the, the portion there where it talks about walking in the light. And so the first two verses of John, 1 John chapter 2 are actually just, they're kind of a, a summary of what Wayne talked about last week. And 
as I was studying and I was looking at looking at this this piece, I was struck with I was struck with um, the one thing that Wayne Wayne touched on last week. He said in verse ten, he says, "If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us." How many of you would ever claim that you have not sinned? We all know better than that, right? No, none of us would ever claim that we haven't sinned. But John actually mentions that twice in those verses that that Wayne touched on. Um, He says it again in in verse 8 and in verse 10. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Where does that come from? So if you study more into Gnosticism, there is the word gnosis, G-N-O-I-G-N-O-S-I-S, actually means knowledge. So there was there was this belief. Let me let me just let me read it read it how it says it here because I think it makes sense. Gnostics claim to possess an elevated knowledge, a higher truth that is only known to a certain few. So those are the spiritual ones. All right. Um, Gnosticism's Gnostics claim to possess a higher knowledge, not from the Bible, but but it is acquired. On some mystical higher plane of existence, existence, Gnostics see themselves as a privileged class elevated above everyone else by their higher and their deeper knowledge of God. And in that claim, they would claim that they were above sin and would never fall to sin. Which is why Paul or John says, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and you're making God out to be a liar. That is some pretty strong language. If you say, he says that you're making God to be a liar. That's serious language. So now let's get to 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love the way John writes his, my little children. You kind of get this idea of a grandfather who loves his children and his grandchildren. He's an old man. And he says, this is why I'm writing to you so that you do not sin. So the title of my message today is what to do with sin. What do you do with sin, the idea of sin? That's not something, we don't talk about sin a whole lot. And I get why. It's not a, not a fun subject. But John, in the, in the book of 1 John, if you read through there, John uses the word sin, sin, sinning 17 different times. And he uses some pretty strong language when he talks about sin. Chapter 3, he talks about it the most, I think. <coughs> Chapter 3, he talks about something that he talks about, a lifestyle of sin, those who practice sinning, those who keep on sinning. And he talks, I'll let you read it, but it's some pretty strong language. He says, if you keep on sinning, you're actually of the devil. Jesus came to defeat the devil, but he says, you're actually of the devil if you keep on sinning. And there's some big deal when we claim to be followers of Jesus 
and we keep on sinning. Another thing you'll see in 1 John is how often he says, if I say, or if we say, da-da-da-da-da, if we say, so I can say whatever I want, but does my life actually match it? If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, does my life match it? He says in, in chapter 2, you'll know it by following his commands. All these different ways that you'll know who you actually are. <clears throat> but in 1 John 2, the first verse see there, the first phrase, he says, I'm writing these things to you, and I think he's referring to the things that he just talked about um, in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1. He's talking about, he says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not, so that you might not sin or you may not sin. I asked, I asked the children this at home last night. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you and I, as a follower of Jesus, have the ability to not sin? Does God give us, equip us with what we need to not sin? So think, think about it. I mean, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are. Does God, does a, does a Christian, a child of God, have the ability to not sin? There's tons and tons of verses that you could look at, but I, my mind went to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, we've not been tempted above what we're able to handle, but he gives us a way out. So I think perhaps we have that ability but we don't always take that way out, right? We're still human. That's a part of our salvation is not only we, we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. This is this ongoing progression of, of, um, of being saved in our lives. And I trust that as we mature, as we go cro- closer to Christ, that that overcoming, that that sin becomes less frequent. But what is sin? John talks about it a lot and seems to make a big deal of it. So what is it? How would you define sin? In its simplest, simplest form, it simply means to err or to miss the mark. So as a follower of Jesus, you pick, or as in a, in, a, in a physical sense, I guess, you pick up your bow or you take your gun and you take a shot at a target. That's the mark that you're aiming for. But if you miss the mark, then you've missed the target. Now, the one thing that I found interesting, and I, I, I wrestled with this on and on and on until I finally, I think I finally began to make a little bit sense of it. Um, verse 1, all, in, in, in chapter 1, the rest of chapter 2, and in verse 3 when John talks about sin, he talks about sin in this overarching general sense, our sins were sinful people, we keep on sinning, um, someone who continues to practice sin. But then in verse 1, I was looking through in an accordance. Verse 1, is a, it's a different tense than all the other ways that John describes sin. And I was like, what, what's up with that? So I, I just kept digging into and trying to figure out why John would say, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do sin. And so rather than this being the big picture of 
we're sinful people. We fall into sin. Um, sin like a big picture. What he's talking about specifically with this, the tense that this is written in um, is a singular, a specific place and a specific time. It's a sin that you are committing. It's something very specific. Um, carries with the idea that um, the writer in Hebrew talks about when he says, we have this put a lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily besets you. So if we're honest, it's, it carries this idea that we, we all have something that tends to ensnare us. And I think that's what John is talking about <coughs> when he says this sin He's writing this so that you might not sin. And then he comes back and he says, but if you do. It's almost could sound like he's given you, just given us a complete way out. You're going to sin. So what's the big deal? How then should we as Christians, how should we view sin? One of the themes in the book of 1 John, is fellowship, fellowship with God. What does sin do in our lives? Does it hinder my fellowship with God? Perhaps that is why John harps on, on doesn't harp on sin, but he talks about sin a lot, and he wants us to take it very, very seriously. So when we talk about sins that might easily entangle us, um, we're all good people here. We don't do the big, the big things, right? Um, we can be pretty, we can do pretty well in hiding, hiding our sin. Um, let me, let me just, let me just give you a couple thoughts on the sin that so easy entangles us or could. Mike mentioned up here the the Conquer series that starts in um, starts on Tuesday about with sexual purity for men. Sexual sins are a huge deal. They're a major issue, not only in the world, but within the church. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things, it's so hard that we don't like talking about. It's hard to talk about. It's uncomfortable. But it's a big deal because of what it does to us. When, when, when someone falls, one of us falls into sin, what, is it, what does that do to us? The, the shame, the guilt, what does it do to us? It squelches the life of, out of us. It, it hinders our ability to walk in freedom. But that's just one. And we might put that up in this category. That's a big sin. What about envy? Anyone ever struggle with envy? Probably not, right? <clears throat> Here recently, a friend had this, this really nifty little device to take notes with, boy, oh boy, I wanted one. Anyway, so I got one for my birthday, so now I don't have to envy envy that. No, I'm kidding. But envy, is a, it's a big deal. It's, it's a condition of our heart. No one else can see it. But we can fall into envy when we look around at what other people's lives are like, what they have. Or how about gossip? Is gossip a big deal? Is that something that we struggle with? <clears throat> oh, I struggled with how, how do I say this? Because when we talk about sin, we can fall into kind of two different camps. 
And, and pride depends maybe the environment or the world that we grew up in. But we can fall into, perhaps, perhaps we see sin, we have to harp on sin and keep talking about sin and making sin this awful, terrible thing it is. And by doing that, that's how we get people to live properly. And so we, we live with this intense kind of guilt. Or we come over here on this side and, and we just severely minimize it like it's no big deal. We talk our way out of it like for sure with things like maybe that we wouldn't gossip, envy, those kind, some of those kinds of things that we maybe in our minds are not as big a deal. We just kind of minimize sin. God's grace is sufficient. He'll cover it all. And we just go on living our lives in sin, gossiping whenever we feel like it. How should we look at it? Is, it, is that really how we should live in sin? Or how, how we should view sin? He's, he wants us to not live in sin, but if you do, how do, how do we, what do we do it, what do we do with it when we do fall into sin? What do we do with the guilt? What do we do with the shame? What we do, what we do, do we do with the conviction when we fall into sin? <clears throat> but if you do, if you do sin, and count on it, you are going to sin. I'm going to sin. We will sin, right? We can't, we can't. We will because we are still fighting the human nature. But God always does give us a way, but we will sin. And so I don't think we overcome sin by focusing on sin and harping on how bad it is and how bad it makes us feel, but we focus where do we take our sin and what do we do with it? So, for the rest of it, I want us to focus on the next part of verse... Actually, just yeah, the rest of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. He says, But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. David, do you want to throw up that first slide? I want to look at a couple of definitions here because... The way these words are defined really make a difference. Advocate, the Greek word parakletos, is one who pleads the cause of another or one who is sent to assist another. It's the exact same word that John uses or Jesus uses um, back in the Gospel of John when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming. And he talks to me, there it's used, the word that they use is, is helper. He's sending a helper. <coughs> But that word that's parakletos is, is this um, word, it describes a court setting. And it sounds like a legal term to us. It's, this, it's a court setting where if someone committed a wrongdoing, something wrong, they would be brought into the court and then someone from who is not the, the one who is being charged with the crime, someone else would come up and he would speak on behalf of that person. All right? He would, he would, someone would come and speak on behalf of that person. And so essentially what John is saying is in the courtroom of heaven, when you do sin and you stand before the judge, someone comes and speaks on your behalf and on my behalf. So think about that a little bit. And I think it's also 
explaining the verse, verse 9 of the previous chapter, it gives more explanation to that of if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus Christ, He says, we have an advocate with the Father. And notice who our advocate is. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Is He qualified to be your advocate and my advocate? Is Jesus qualified? He is the only one who has lived the life that you and I live perfectly without sin. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, why in the world would He step forward and plead my cause as one who rejected Him? Why would He step forward and plead our cause to the Father? So if... In our, our words, our terms today, we'd call this an, an, a defense attorney. Try, I was trying to think of a good example. So Jimmy would never do this. But if Jimmy goes back there and counts the offering every Sunday morning, if some Sunday morning he would start stuffing a little bit in his pocket, and we would see, we would see it happen, we, we'd see this money in his pocket, and so we bring him in and we say, what's the deal? So a defense attorney, when something like that happens, a defense attorney will try to convince the court or the judge that their client is innocent. There's a reason Jimmy took that. He had to because he had to be able to feed his family. So he should be it's innocent. He should not be charged with stealing or anything like that. Or someone set him up. All these different explanations that we come up with to try to say that the person is innocent. So when you and I sin, sin a sin, that's kind of how you would say the, the, in verse 1, if you and I would sin a sin, Jesus comes as your attorney to the Father. Do you think He comes and He pleads your innocence? I don't think Jesus comes to his father and says, this guy's innocent. He says, he's guilty. I've sinned, and I stand before the father, the judge, and I am guilty. But Jesus says, I'm advocating, I'm speaking for him. But not only does he speak and say, oh, he's innocent, he didn't do anything. He says, he is guilty, I'm guilty. But he says, I will take the punishment that he deserves. It's, it's, it's so profound, and yet it's so simple, it's so hard to even put words to it that the sin that I commit, Jesus would come, the only perfect one, he would come and stand beside me and say, yes, he's guilty, but here, let me take the punishment for his sin. And it talks about, he, he names that, he calls it the propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate with Jesus with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus enters a plea on our behalf as the one who is the propitiation. David, do you want to put the, that one up here? The propitiation for our sins. <coughs> this is not a word that is used much. There's four occasions in the New Testament that this word's used. And it simply means um, the atoning sacrifice. Well, that, the, so 
hilamos, the, the, the first word there is the, the Greek word that's used in propitiation, and it means an atoning sacrifice. And John uses it here, and he uses it again in chapter 4 um, when he talks about our sin. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's used in two other occasions in the New Testament, and I want to bring us to that because I think it helps us understand or maybe begin to grasp this idea of propitiation. So it comes from the word hilastorion, hilasterion, and that word, that word means the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. I'll pick it up then in, in, in Romans, but it actually uses, it uses the word mercy, or propitiation. The actual word is mercy seat. Now, I don't know how many of you remember or can, can think back to the tabernacle that was built in the Old Testament. I want to read to you. From Exodus chapter 25. You can follow along or you can just listen if you would like. David, you can put up the slide of the, the Ark of the Covenant. This is, <coughs> this is God's description of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And then in Leviticus, he talks about what is actually done on the mercy seat. One of the things as you read through Exodus And as they were building the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, they were building all that. God said that he this he's doing this so that he can come down and he can dwell with his people. So listen, listen to the description of this. This is the best picture I could find. I think we struggle to find a good picture of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half in length, and a cubit and a half in breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. Shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. One of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its end. So that whole top covering and the cherubim are all one solid piece of gold. The cherubim shall spread their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherub be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandments for the people of Israel. Does anyone remember what was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant? Bow. The Ten Commandments. There were a couple other items then as well, I think, but that's the main one. That's exactly what I wanted. Inside there, inside this are the Ten Commandments, the laws that God has given to His people. And every once a year, this, this was placed in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. Once a year, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. Then he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It was called 
on the Day of Atonement, and it happened once a year, and that was the atonement for all the sins of the people and for the priest himself. You remember the sacredness of that moment. And as the priest would go into the temple or into the Holy of Holies up to the Ark of the Covenant and to that mercy seat, he would actually carry a symbol or carry, um, I think it was a brass bowl that had smoking coals in it with, so it would create a haze in front of his eyes so that he could not actually see the presence of God in the mercy seat lest he die. But as he would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat, God looking down and he sees the commands that every man has, and every one of us has broken. But rather than seeing that, he sees the blood that atones for the sins of the people and he comes down and he fellowships with his people. So the mercy seat is where the atonement takes place, the, the suffering, the, the, the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin takes place on the mercy seat so that God could come and fellowship with his people. Romans 3 picks up this idea. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he says in verse 24, he says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood. Because of his blood, we can now have fellowship with God. Jesus is the mercy seat for you and I. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that you and I can never meet. And there's nothing Nothing, nothing that you and I can ever, ever do to atone for our sins. We know that here, but boy, oh boy, do we try. And God says there's nothing you can do. It's only by Jesus being the propitiation for our sins. In his book, um, Objects of His Affection, Scotty Smith says it this way, On the cross... God treated Jesus as though he were a sinner so that in life he can now treat us as though we were righteous. So when God, when you stand before God and Jesus comes and he advocates for you, we're guilty. But when God looks at us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus and we're cleansed and he sees us as righteous. We're unrighteous people, and yet God sees us as righteous because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. (coughs) And the beauty of it is it's incredibly personal, and he says it's for the whole world. Now, I want you to, if you have to, close your eyes, but I want you to imagine, I I told someone before, before I came up, I was like, Propitiation is such a a vast, amazing, it's beyond words to express the beauty of what has happened. It's the story, it's the gospel. It's Jesus taking the punishment for your sin and mine. And he says, if that isn't love, what is? If that's not love, what is? And if that doesn't inspire something 
in us, in our relationship with God, if that doesn't inspire us to to walk closely with God, to walk in fellowship with God, so that we don't fall into sin, rather than focus on on focus on trying to not sin, focus on Jesus, the propitiation, the one who gave Himself to set you free from sin. And it totally changes how we view sin, how we view its effect on our life and our desires and our fellowship with Him. So Jesus doesn't come only to speak in our offense, defense. So you have, in Hebrews it talks about a high priest who can recognize and walk and feel the exact same things that you felt. So when you sin, what do you do with it? You have someone who loves you so much, he's going to step up to the plate and say, I'm going to speak for you. Look what he said back in, what Wayne said last week in his message. He says, if we confess, confess your sins to Jesus. Stop. We have to, we can stop trying to hide. We can stop trying to act like we didn't do anything wrong. We have someone who loves us so incredibly, incredibly much that we can, that he would actually take the punishment for our sins and allow us to live in freedom. As a child of God, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. It's where we find fellowship with God. So here it was this 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 place where the priest would have to come into and make this sacrificing atonement. And John is telling us that Jesus is this mercy seat. Jesus is the place where we come and we fellowship with God. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the beauty of it is, like I said, it's personal, but it's for the whole world. And if that, the reality of that sinks into our lives, we are going to take it to the whole world. We're going to offer the world the beauty of what God has given us. So what do you do with sin? You're going to sin, right? What do you do when you sin? You have an advocate and you have a mercy seat. That's where you take it. And you find freedom. All right, this morning we have fellowship lunch. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'd be interested in hearing after, what are your thoughts? Does God, do Christians have the ability to live above sin? I'd like to hear what you think. All right, so we're going to, we'll, we'll close in prayer, and then I'll pray for the meal as well, and then we'll make our way back. Thank you, God, this morning for this great gift, the gift that is in, that is Jesus, who's our mercy seat. Thank you that Jesus comes and he advocates, he speaks for us. God, we're so unworthy and we can't imagine how much love that you must have for us, that you would pour out your wrath on your son so that we can live lives that are free from your wrath and we can walk in your love. Thank you for that. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you that you brought us together. And together, (coughs) as we walk in the freedom and in fellowship with you, 
help us to be able to explore what, how, that, how that influences our fellowship with each other and with the world that we are called to make a difference in. Thank you for your provision for us, God. We thank you for the meal that's, that we have in front of us here at, here at noon. Um, I just pray that you bless the hands that it, um, worked so hard to prepare it for us. Bless our fellowship time together as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.